afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And, and if you are reading through Hebrews uh, at all, you know that that's, a, that that's a pretty good description of this book. Uh, it's also a pretty good description as it happens of Jesus' ministry, uh, what he was about. You know, he was always uh, uh, encouraging those who were downtrodden and who were looking for God's comfort, and he was always cooking the grits of everybody else. And um, this last week, we uh, looked at one of the great warning passages in the book of Hebrews, which, if anything, is meant to afflict the comfortable. It, it is meant to, uh, to tell those who are perhaps on the edge of comfortably drifting away from faith in Christ uh, not to do that, and it's a strong and stern warning against that. This week we're going to look at some verses that fall into the other category of comforting those of us who are afflicted. And I, I want you to picture the setting here, if, you're, if you can, for the book of Hebrews. It's a tiny little house church, uh, most likely much smaller than the group that's here. It might be, you know, like this side of the room. Just a few people relatively speaking. In a city of about a million people who all see them as the enemy, as the outcasts, as those who do not follow the traditions of Rome. They're not in prison yet. They're not dead yet. But everybody can see the handwriting on the wall that persecution is coming. And they must have felt totally powerless and absolutely adrift, like a cork floating on the tide. And yet, the writer of Hebrews inspired him to write these verses to speak truth into their situation and to remind them that what they feel, what they feel to be true, is not the whole picture, that there are other truths that are also uh, not only completely operable in their situation, but that uh, will outlive their situation for all eternity. And I want to show you some of those comforting truths uh, that are there for not only for them, but also for us in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're in chapter 2 this week, uh, verses, uh, beginning of verse 5. So if you've got your Bible, let's open it up to Hebrews chapter 2, beginning of verse 5. The writer says this, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, for a little while lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Now, can I just make a side comment, by the way? I'm much better at quoting random chunks of Bible than remembering where they are. 
And uh, so I, I relate to this. It has been testified somewhere. Verse 6, <laughs> right? I, re- I resemble that, right? I know it's in Romans somewhere. <laughs> uh, what verse beats me? I'll have to dig it out, right? Um, but remember how I said this portion of Hebrews is designed to bring comfort to the afflicted? How is this comforting? It's, well, it's a reminder to them of what God's original purpose was in creating them and creating humanity, and that that purpose is one day going to be fulfilled. Not fulfilled right now, but one day it will be fulfilled. Um, Verse 5, he raises the question, he, he says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we were speaking. He's just... He says, you know, we've been talking all, the, all this about angels and their greatness and power, but how they're less than Jesus, who is above them and in his name and his job and his reign and his, in his authority and his power. But it's not to angels that the world to come belongs. Just remember that. And so if you may be asking, well, if it's not to the angels that belongs the world to come, who does it belong to? And then he answers the question. He quotes Psalm chapter 8. And he says this. He says, look, it belongs to you and to me. That the world to come is going to be, in some sense, the fulfillment of God's original created purpose for human beings. Now, you may not remember this, but... uh, In Psalm chapter 8, the psalmist is writing about all of the greatness and grandeur and glory of creation. And he talks about the stars and how how God made them. And he talks about uh, the sun and the moon and and just the grandeur of all creation. And he feels very, very small in comparison to everything else. And by the way, we are, just in case you're curious... Uh, it is about 600 trillion miles across our galaxy. And we are one of 100,000 million galaxies. So from the perspective of the universe, you and I are microscopic. We're like subatomic particles <laughs> in the, compared to the scale of the universe, Right? And he looks at all of the grandeur of creation and he sees the stars and the planets and these black holes and he looks at stuff like like whales and elephants and other things in creation that are just massive. I mean, a bull elephant can grow to be 13 feet high at the shoulder. Think about that. I don't care if you're a minute bull. I mean, you're short compared to an elephant, Right? And he outweighs you by a bit, right? Or if you've ever seen a whale, I mean, they're immense, just immense. And God has created these majestic creatures or stood next to a lion at the zoo, right? You ever go down to the Peoria Zoo? They got that bulletproof glass about eight inches thick between you and the lion's. But that thing comes up with those yellow eyes 
and looks at you right there, right? And you know he's thinking, if I could get through this glass, boy, you would be snacks, okay? You guys look like hors d'oeuvres to me on the other side of that, right? And you see that creature and you go, wow, right? And then you look at yourself and go, you know, I'm kind of puny and uh, insignificant in the scope of all of the rest of God's creation. But then the psalmist says this, that you have taken human beings and you have made them for just a little while lower than the angelic realm. I mean, think about the angels for just a minute, right? What's the one thing that an angel always says whenever he appears? Don't be afraid, (laughs) right? Because apparently when one of these beings shows up, this is a terrifying thing. And so you need to be told, don't be afraid. And yet, the writer of Hebrews is saying, you live in a world in which, for right now, you have less grandeur and power and glory and magnificence than the angels, but not forever. One day, you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, will be given a position of rule and authority and power exceeding that of the angels. Does that blow your mind? Because it should. For a little while, lower than the angels. We were created, whether you know it or not, we were created for benevolent rule over this planet. We were created to be God's vice regents. To have the sun as a crown and the moon as a nightlight. To rule over all creation. Look at the tail end though of verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He's left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Him. That's a fact. Amen? Ooh. Hot mic. Um, We are not what we are supposed to be, are we? We don't really know what Adam and Eve were, were like or what creation was like prior to the fall. We can really only guess. What we do know is that if they had not fallen into sin, then they would have continued to fulfill God's purpose for them as the king and queen of this planet with all of creation existing in submission to them as God's image bearers. And I happen to believe that the fall was far more cataclysmic than we sometimes think. That it altered fundamentally not only Adam and Eve's appearance and their abilities, but also all of the rest of creation right along with it. That the whole world was in some sense broken by the sin which had come into it. And our rule now over creation is tenuous at best, right? The animals are not really in submission to us. You know, we, have, we kind of rule the animal world through fear and intimidation, right? And we say, either submit to me or I will eat you or wear you. 
right? <laughs> we do not live in a realm in which the world is totally at peace. Man's rule over creation turns into ecological disaster one after another. At present, we don't see God's purposes being fulfilled for us, even though we believe one day that they will be. How can we know for sure, though, that they will be? Well, that's verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. Well, let's back up here, verse 8. We do not see everything in subjection to Him. Verse 9. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. In other words, Jesus is, and by the way, this is the first time Jesus' name appears in the book of Hebrews, right here, verse 9, chapter 2. He is the prophetic and preliminary fulfillment of God's plans for all of humanity and all of creation. Like us, He was made for a little while lower than the angels. Like us, He went through suffering and went through death. And in fact, He died for us so that death for us is nothing more than a taste. Did you catch that? Now, Jesus doesn't just taste death. He drinks it all the way. But you and I, as believers in and followers of Jesus Christ, all we get is a taste of death. I don't know if you know it or not, but you as a believer in Jesus Christ don't really die. Now, I understand there will be one day a day when you know, you'll go out in a blaze of glory in a car crash, or I will, or they'll diagnose you with something and it'll kind of progress. And one day, the last heartbeat will happen and the last brain wave will fire and the last breath will exhale and that will be it. And we will say of you that so-and-so has died or that they have passed away. But in reality... The instant after that moment, you will be alive more than you have ever been in your life if you were a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen? You will not really be dead. Now, unbelievers, those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, do in fact really, really, really die. In fact, they experience death forever and ever and ever. Amen? But Jesus Christ came. He was made like us for a little while lower than the angels. He went through suffering and death so that you and I would just taste death rather than have to really fully experience it. And Jesus fulfills in His life and, and ministry and suffering and death fulfills God's purpose for us. And what it means is this, is that Jesus is the forerunner, that He is the pioneer of what we will experience. Because we, like Him, are made for a little while lower than the angels. We go through suffering in this life. We will one day experience death. But just like Him also, we will experience glory and honor and rule over the angels and all of creation. 
because we are connected to Him. That He is the exemplar that we follow. And just as all things in creation will be, are put, have been put in subjection to Jesus, so one day they will all things in creation be put under subjection to you and me. That we will be the vice regents of creation along with the Son of God. Is that encouraging? Yes. That one day... All of God's purposes in making you and me are going to be fulfilled. Creation will be put back to the way it was. And you and I will be restored to our position within it as the rightful rulers of creation. And God will rule over us and we will follow Him completely. And everything in creation will be reordered and put back to right. How do we know that glory like that is coming for you and I? Because it came to Jesus already. And, you know, Paul calls him in another place, 1 Corinthians 15, he refers to him as the, as the first fruits from among the dead. Right? And the idea is, is, that, is that Jesus is the beginning of the harvest. But there's a much greater one coming, and you and I will participate in that one. And whatever Jesus possesses, we will also possess. And I just want to tell you this. You know, it, it, let me tell you why this matters that Jesus has already been glorified and that He's already experienced all of the restoration of glory and honor that we will one day also possess. Because I know that some of you out there right now feel like you are being put face first through a clothes wringer. And life is hard. And you are struggling. And you feel alone and that that no one notices or cares. But hear what Hebrews is saying. That God has glory in mind for you. And that what we're experiencing now is painful but temporary. And that glory will come for you and for me for all eternity. Now, we can't even imagine that. We really can't. I mean, Hurt is 89 years old today, right? And I think about that and I go, wow. That puts you back a long way. A long way. I mean, you're not just prior to World War II. I mean, that's like the Roaring Twenties, right? I mean, that's a long time, right? That's just 89 years. Do you know how long that is in comparison to eternity? Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. It's, it's about that much. <laughs> okay. It's about this much. It's not even measurable in the scope of eternity. 
And we think, you know, gosh, today was really long. Or man, this year has really been rough. Or oh, the last 10 years, man, it's been really tough on me, right? But you have glory for all eternity to look forward to. For all eternity. The whole world may at the moment have you under its boots, but one day the position will be reversed. Amen? One day you will rule over the entire planet alongside the Savior. Even the angelic realm will submit to you and me. Massive. Now, God has good plans for us, and they are accomplished for us through Christ's death. And His plan, ultimately, is to glorify us with Christ, our brother. Now, this is even better. Read, read these verses with me, verse 10 to 13. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children... God has given to me. Now, I love verse 10. Uh, those of you who, who know a little bit about me know I have a degree in theology. And this, verse 10, is some massive, awesome theology. And something that we need to understand. It tells us, first of all, that Jesus, that's the He, is not only the one who made all things, but He is also the one for whom all things were made. Theologically speaking, let me lay a, lay a $50 word on you, okay? Creation has a telos. It has an end. It has a purpose. And what that purpose is, is to bring glory to the Son of God who made it. That as you look at the creation, you would see it and go, whoa. One of the things that I enjoy actually about living in Chillicothe is that on a clear night, because we're far enough out away from town, you can look up into this into the sky on a clear night and you can see more stars than any place I've ever lived. The whole sky is lit with stars. And I look at those and I say to myself, self, wow. And I am directed to praise the one who made those things. Understanding that some of those stars are not even stars, that they're galaxies that I'm looking at. And that God brought all that stuff into existence. And that on top of that, 
that the Son is active right now. Look at this. In bringing many sons to glory. That He is active right now in redeeming people and that His redemption is not just of a few people, but of many people. There are literally billions of people alive today who bow their knee before Jesus Christ and name Him as Savior. And there have been hundreds of millions more in the history of the world to this point. Many sons to glory. And on top of that, it's not, you know, hear that second word. It's not just many, it's sons. Sons. In other words, we are not redeemed to be additional servants necessarily of the living God like the angels. Like, you know, I had some extra stuff to do and I really needed some other creatures in which, with which to do it and so I'm going to redeem you so that you can work for me. It's that He redeems us as His sons. And when redemption is complete, we will stand in glory as adopted sons of the living God, like unto Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son. And verse 10 also tells us something else that's strange, if you read it. That He was, quote, made perfect through suffering. And that seems odd to think about in terms of uh, in terms of the Son of God, because it almost seems to imply that He was somehow not perfect before suffering. It isn't that He is in some way morally deficient prior to living a human life. Jesus retains and exhibits all of the attributes of the living God, and so there is nothing lacking in His Uh, divine nature as God as He lives His incarnate life. He remains completely free from sin and He possesses all of God's attributes in perfection. But there are some things that God, as God, cannot experience. But that God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ can experience. And one of those things is suffering like we experience. In fact, one of the big themes of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus knows what it's like to be you and me. And He understands how it feels, not just on kind of an intellectual, empathetic level, like you see somebody who has, let's say you see somebody going through cancer treatment and you go, ah, wow, that doesn't look like any fun. It's a whole different experience, I am certain, to be someone going, walking with somebody through that and to be the person who actually has the port in your chest getting the infusions. Amen? It is an entirely different experience. And so no one can ever say to God, because of Jesus Christ and His suffering, no one can ever say to God, you don't know what it's like. Because Jesus can say, yes, I do. I know exactly what it's like. I know perfectly what it's like. I've been there, done that, got the shirt. Amen? 
He knows what it's like. He knows what we go through. He knows what it is to be persecuted and betrayed and beaten and tortured and killed. Because you honor God rather than obey men. And that's the situation these Hebrew people are facing. That they're going to have to suffer because they honor God rather than obey men. Jesus knows what that's like. God learned perfectly what it is like to be a human and suffer as we do. Verse 11. uh, There's a debated question here when it says, who is the one source? When it talks about we have one source with Jesus, who is that one source? Is it God the Father or is that Adam? And I'm going to, uh, in other words, is, is the writer emphasizing Jesus' common humanity with us? Or is he emphasizing uh, our exaltation as children of God along with Jesus? I want to answer that question in as bold a theological fashion as I can. The same way that I answer a question if someone asks me if I'd like chocolate, ice cream, or vanilla. Yes. <laughs> okay. In other words, when it says that Jesus and us have one source, is that God the Father or is that Adam? Yes. He shares common humanity with us, and we will share with Him common exaltation as sons of God. And we will one day, through the Holy Spirit, experience what it is to be a divine son. Now, I don't know how that works exactly. But I know that by the power of God, He transforms us and changes us. Here's the point of verse 11, though, not answering that question, but this, that Jesus is proud to call us his brothers. You know, if you have a successful family member, you know, worldly terms, successful, um, you, you tend to brag on them a little bit, right? You know, if you, if you have a, let's say you have a, a sister who is, you know, the president of uh, General Dynamics or, you know, Microsoft or something like that, right? You go, yeah, that's my sister, right? Or if you're, if you're imagine, imagine how, how insufferable it must be to be friends with one of the children of one of the presidents, right? You know, you can say, well, my dad's an astronaut. Oh, yeah? Well, my dad's president of the United States, <laughs> right? You've got the ultimate one-up on everybody, right? Oh, yeah? Well, when I was in the White House, because I lived there, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, this is, this is, this is kind of a, you know, like I say, you can, you can get one up on everybody on that, right? Oh, so you're a rodeo bull, bull rider. Well, that's neat. Yeah, my dad's the president, right? Uh, but it says that in verse 11 that Jesus is our older brother and God is our father. And that he is proud, that not just that we can be proud of him, but that he is proud of us. He is proud, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Now that's backwards, isn't it? From how we normally think of it. I'm happy to call Jesus my Lord and my Savior and my brother, but but the text says that Jesus is proud to call me 
his brother. In other words, that he sits in heaven in a sense and brags on us and says, hey, did you see that? That guy's, that guy's one of mine. He's my brother. He's my sister. She's my sister. Those are, those are my brothers and sisters right there. Did you see them? Look at that. Hey, Michael, check this out. I mean, can you imagine this? That you and I are the objects of God's boasting. Anybody still feel insignificant? That God looks through the universe and sees you and me as the children of God and he brags on us. It's an amazing thing. And that's the basis for a great life, not just a great day. Right? That God is proud of me. In verse 12 and 13, he quotes three Old Testament passages. The first one is Psalm 22, 22. If you don't remember Psalm 22, you need to remember this. It's a messianic psalm that describes the Messiah's crucifixion. And it describes it, by the way, about 900 years prior to the Roman Empire being established. You think God can't, can't predict what happens in the future? He gives you an accurate description of crucifixion before it's been invented. It's the psalm where Jesus cries out. Uh, it's the psalm that contains the words that Jesus cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are in Psalm 22. It also contains this verse, this shout of confidence in God's deliverance, and that phrases... God for his deliverance. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. In other words, the psalmist is saying, after all of this wretchedness has happened to me, after I've been through crucifixion and death and betrayal, after all of that happens, I'm not going to blame God for all that occurred. I'm going to praise God for all that occurred because he did and will deliver me. And, and it pictures, the, as the writer of Hebrews uses it, it pictures Jesus, in a sense, leading you and I in worship. As He praises and worships God the Father, He is telling us, His brothers, that we ought to praise Him too. And then he says, second quotation, these last two are from uh, chapter 8 of, of uh, Isaiah. And Isaiah chapter 8 is sandwiched in between these great messianic passages. Chapter 7, uh, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. Uh, chapter 9, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. And in between there, Isaiah preaches this message from chapter 7, and he says, God is going to send a Savior. God is going to deliver. And he has these two prophetically named boys. One is named Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Longest name in your whole Bible, right? Going to win at Bible trivia? That's the answer, Right? Uh, and his name means quick to the plunder, quick to the prey. Okay? And he's got this other boy, Shir Jashub, which means a remnant will return. 
And no one listened to the message that he preached in chapter 7. And Isaiah says, but I'm going to trust that the promised Messiah will come and deliver. And that the promises that you've given to me through my, and to the nation through the names of my boys, the one boy is a promise of God's military deliverance over Israel's enemies. And the other boy is a promise that God will save out of, out of that nation people that belong to him. That despite all the wickedness around the prophet, that people will be saved by God's grace. And so he stands before God with his hands on his sons and he says, Behold, I and the children that God has given me. And the writer of Hebrews takes these two, these two expressions of confidence that though no one listens to what you said, I will trust in the promise of Messiah. And though I have these boys and no one believes the message that's connected with them, I will stand before you and I will give you praise because I believe what you said to me through them. And the writer of Hebrews is picturing Jesus doing the same thing with us, only replacing the sons are you and I, with Jesus playing the role of the prophet. Saying that we are the remnant who will be saved, and that one day our enemies will be put to flight. Because the Messiah has been born of the virgin and has come. Amen. The Lord is still salvation. He still saves a remnant through death. And we are never without hope. Because Jesus Christ, our older brother, our Savior, will gloriously save us and restore us and bring us home to heaven with him. Amen. Here's the point. In our world, there are whole media outlets and political campaigns and candidates running around. And all of them, or at least many of them, are selling fear. Fear of the future, fear of our country's enemies, fear of economic collapse, at a very minimum, fear of what happens if the other people on the other side of the aisle get elected. Amen? And we who are God's people, as we survey the landscape around us, probably have more legitimate reasons to worry than we've ever had in my lifetime. But nevertheless, we need to hear and obey what God is saying to us here in Hebrews 2. Don't be afraid. Glory awaits. Glory is coming for you and for me. One day, hopefully not soon, but one day you may face pressure because of your faith in Christ. It may come through your peers at school who mock and joke and make fun 
talk to you about being a member of the God Squad or the Bible Thumpers or the, the Jesus Freaks or whatever the name is. The God Squatters, you know. You Jesus people. It may come through your job. It may come when they ask you to participate in and give approval to something which God forbids. It may come through our government or through policy or through government officials. I don't know what will happen. But here's what I know for sure. That if and when that day comes, we don't need to be afraid. Because Jesus Christ has, has already suffered to bring us to glory. And as a result of that, if we suffer like Him, it will only serve to bring us to glory also. Jesus is the pioneer and the forerunner, and we follow in His footsteps. And we don't need to be afraid. Because we know that what awaits us, regardless of what they do to us, what awaits us is glory. What can man do to me? Amen. The worst thing you can do to me is kill me. And then what? And then what? And then I stand in glory in the presence of God as the vice regent of this planet. What are you going to do about that, big boy? <laughs> you know what I mean? What? Seriously. My death will be the day of my exaltation. My suffering will be the cause of greater glory in the presence of God. One day you may be diagnosed with some horrible disease. You may lose those closest to you in a tragic way. You may have other hard circumstances. And you may feel that your heart is ripped in half. And you may cry out to God in agony. But don't be afraid. Glory awaits. Glory awaits. Redemption is coming. And the suffering that we endure, whatever it is, for whatever reason, whatever cause, whatever agent brings it into our life, whether disease or government official, which are more closely related than you might think, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, whatever happens, whatever happens, glory is coming. And I can stand fearless before the onslaught, knowing that just as Jesus suffered and was exalted, so I may suffer, but I will also be exalted with him, who is my brother, who is proud to call me his brother, and proud to call you sister and brother, who is longing for the day when you and I will be with him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, 
I thank you for this text. I thank you for its encouragement. I thank you that we have the sure promise because they have already been fulfilled uh, for us in Jesus. That glory is coming. That suffering and death are temporary. Only Only the gateway and the outer path to your presence. Father, help us to be fearless in our faith to walk before you knowing that one day your purposes for us will be fulfilled, that they are being fulfilled in part right now, but that one day they will be completely fulfilled and we will have, not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of what Christ has done for us, glory and honor and a status in the kingdom of God as your sons. Father, we can't even comprehend that, but we thank you for it. And we pray that you would use your word today to encourage us. We pray.